Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. And your employer says, well, okay, you only have to come in twice a week. We'd like you to come in four. You're going to advance more quickly in your career and help us more with training junior employees or whatnot. Uh, but you're going to be more likely to choose. But even, you know, even a warehouse worker at Amazon or Walmart has a little bit more clout than he or she did two years ago. Certainly, we have seen wages increasing. But not only do they have a little bit more clout, maybe a little bit more money in, in their pocket, um, you know, Walmart will now send you to college for free. So much for the great migration back to office life. As we approach two years of living COVIDly, many of us are still working remotely, often exclusively, and often with little desire to go back to the five-day-a-week desk grind, what with its commuter traffic, ID lanyards, and half-eaten muffins in the pantry. Who will get hit hardest in this new order? Are you maybe eligible to negotiate dividends from this shift? Why did it take the world this long to appreciate the majesty of sweatpants? So many questions. We'll call this one remote control. Stay with us. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon & Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salomon & Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR One, Spotify, and Apple at linkfulldradio.com. Please subscribe, rate us, and recommend the show to others. And follow on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Full D Radio. Joining me from New York is Matthew Boyle of Bloomberg News. He covers management and workplace trends. He's been steeped in the whole work from home, uh, Michigas, remote work. What is it going to mean for commercial office rents? management relations with labor, if they're a give back, a tug of war of benefits, you've covered everything. And it's even been featured on the front page of newspapers who carry uh, Bloomberg's copy. How are you, sir? I'm doing fine, Robin. Thanks for having me. Well, who would have thought that, I guess, what, 18, 19 months into this, that there would still be kind of meaning of life confusion about what the future of work really is going to look like? Everybody told us that it's going to be some hybrid, some combination of coming in, staying at home. But there seems to be much more of a tug to kind of stay at home and remain at home, especially in that a lot of the indication was that productivity didn't exactly fall off a cliff over the past year and a half. No. And anyone who looked at the research, Robin, would have known this. I mean, there were studies mm -hmm. out there. I know, you know, let's say less than 15 percent or or even less than 10 percent of, of the uh, you know white collar workforce was actually doing some sort of hybrid schedule or working remote before the pandemic. But there was research out there. I mean, Nicholas Bloom at Stanford did a very famous study uh, where he looked at some, I think it was some Chinese call centers um, and did this experiment where, you know, he put some of them in a group working from home uh, full time. And lo and behold, the ones who were working from home, their productivity not only didn't go down, it went up and, that, and, and they were happier as well. So there was some research out there. So what's been really interesting about this whole pandemic future of work question is that we were talking about a lot of these issues before COVID hit. What happened with COVID was it just, it just put accelerant on a lot of these trends we had already been seeing. 
in the workforce. And of course, yeah, made for some very uncertain and tumultuous times as you suddenly have this mass migration of white collar workers out of offices. Now, of course, a lot of, you know, a lot of them are trying to come back in or at least employers want them back in. But we thought we'd have a, a mass migration back into downtown high rises in September. And Delta has uh, certainly delayed that. Now we're, we thought we'd see another, you know, sort of big mass move back into mm-hmm. offices in January. But guess what? Now, you know, now we've got a new variant. Is it more than anything else a function of the the haves and have nots kind of white collar divide from blue collar? People who work at Salesforce or Apple who are flight risks, who could get poached by other companies, who have tech training and degrees and pedigree, or always on LinkedIn, they're the ones who could dictate their terms, whereas uh, other people who've who've kind of, you know, their bosses watch them, they have to badge in, they have to clock in, they have to be monitored and micromanaged a bit more, and they don't have as much clout, fine, they don't have as much clout. I mean, yes, historically and and certainly, yes, you know, if you are a data scientist, uh, you know, at Salesforce, uh, you've certainly got more clout, more flexibility, more freedom to maneuver. But that's because of your skills. Right. But even, you know, even a warehouse worker at Amazon or Walmart has a little bit more clout than he or she did two years ago. Certainly, we have seen wages increasing on the low end. Um, Of course, a lot of those wage increases are now being eaten up or superseded by what we're seeing on the inflation side. But yes, they do have, and not only do they have a little bit more clout, maybe a little bit more money in, in their pocket, um, you know, Walmart will now send you to college for free. Um, you know, the amount of benefits that they're doling out to keep these lower wage blue collar workers, if not happy, then at least somewhat, you know, less, <laughs> less morose um, is really something. I mean, when Walmart, you know, when Walmart's uh, paternity leave and adoption leave rivals a company like Starbucks, which is uh, a little bit more mm-hmm. famous for, for its worker policies, then, you know, um, it, we're really living in interesting times here. Matthew, uh, I'm going back to your analysis in Bloomberg City Lab. The office of the future is competing with everywhere else, right? You wrote an office design research team at Herman Miller quizzed hundreds of companies to learn what it will take to get workers back to their desks. Um, I I noticed some of the observations here. You said um, surveys show that executives are much more excited about returning to offices than (laughs) rank and file employees. That's like an office space, duh, observation from 99, by the way, but I digress. While many black workers prefer working from home, free from the microaggressions they face in the office, the decisions companies make now with their workspaces will not only impact their corporate cultures, but will influence the shape of cities for years to come. Uh, this is where I struggled with this analysis and so much of the another, other analysis coming out of Business Week, Fortune, the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, gosh, uh, uh you know, yeah. Don't forget, yeah. You know, fast courts and fast company and all the other. Yeah, yeah. the head. Everyone the is writing about this right now. Corn ferry and everybody, every yeah. management journal writing about it because it's not just a culture, a soft culture thing. But we're going to get to this with our next guest later down in the show. But trillions of dollars of commercial real estate valuation and overhead. Yeah, I mean, soft soft skills are <laughs> these soft things and soft skills are getting a lot harder uh, these days, aren't they? Um, you know. Um, now that you no longer have this assumption that we're just going to show up to downtown high raises and, and companies are now thinking, OK, so are you saying we actually have to make the office the destination? And, and let's not forget, this is what retailers have been going through for the past two decades, right? They've had to make their stores more of a destination. So they've gone into this whole thing called experiential retail, which is just a fancy way of saying, you know, don't get bored in aisle six and have something, you know. Um, at least make you try to get out there to the mall. So now, you know, JLL and all the big real estate landlords 
have to do this. Um, I spoke with JLL. They now have some sort of product that they're calling, you know, experience anywhere. Now that they're realizing that, you know, what's going on with rents and vacancies, they're now trying to help companies in more of a hybrid world, you know, uh, with apps and all these sort of digital whiz bang things. And you kind of think, okay, aren't you just a sort of a real estate landlord? Um, but, you know, you, you have people in charge of these uh, practices now. So they really are sort of, you know, struggling to uh, to pivot. And uh, and then meanwhile, you have this, you know, the CEO of Goldman Sachs basically getting on a, a you know, a podium and saying New York City better become more attractive or else he's going to send even more workers to, to Florida or Texas. I mean, it's, again, it's just things we had not expected to see here. And it really is shaking up these long held paradigms, this sort of, uh, uh, you know, the tectonic plates, as they say, are shifting here. And, you know, there's a taboo that Ed Zitron addressed. This is a, a the PR executive whose uh, bylines have appeared recently in The Atlantic, uh, in that one of the things this does, I guess Warren Buffett's famous quote is, you see, when the tide comes back out, you see who's not wearing swim trunks. And the era of Zoom and maybe hyper productivity at home and being on and being super connected and all hands really expose the the middlemen or the levels of management that really weren't doing anything the whole time. <laughs> maybe they were more managing yeah. up. And that when you're kind of counting the straws at the end of the week, kind of the, the, the PL, the profit and loss psychically, you know, literally or figuratively, you can kind of see who's dead weight and maybe where you need to reallocate resources. Yeah. So hence, goes exactly. back to your observation, why middle management is so eager to get people back in the office. Yeah, I mean, and, and as someone who's spent a little bit of time in middle management, yes, I, I think a lot of them spend far, far too much time managing up rather than managing the people uh uh, who are actually on their staff, and it's endemic to not just corporate America, but sort of corporations uh, globally. But again, one of the more interesting things I'm working on right now is this sense that, you know, managers were all worried about the great resignation and managers are pulling their hair out. I talked to an HR director who is just preemptively giving uh, staff just 10, 20, 25 percent pay raises preemptively without even them coming just to make sure just to ward off them coming into her office and saying, you know, I got a better offer from Google or Facebook or somewhere. So if that's, you know, causing managers to pull their hair out, what we forget is that the fact that, you know, it's not just that people are maybe burnt out by the pandemic or they don't think they're paid enough. I think companies aren't doing enough as well to just show employees what else, you know, lies ahead for them in the inside the organization. What other opportunities are there? You know, could an engineer become a salesperson? Could somebody working in data totally shift into a new department? Uh, you think of the internal job board, it probably hasn't been improved in many companies since you know, <laughs> since the 1980s. Um, or the performance and, review system. Yes, exactly, right? which is something. That, but at least while the performance review has gotten a lot of attention, at let's say, at least in Harvard Business Review circles, as needing a complete overhaul. And I think it was Adobe that several years ago just chucked performance reviews. And then a lot of tech companies followed suit saying, yeah, these things mm -hmm. are absolutely useless. Why in the world are we doing this? Um, yeah, it's things like that, these the sort of old stanchions of corporate America, you know, whether it's the performance review, the five-day work week, you know, look at uh, Unilever out in New Zealand, of all places, is experimenting with a four-day work week. And they just extended that trial actually back to, uh, to June of 2022, so they can get a little bit more data, but they're not alone. So again, yeah, what, what, what's interesting to see is, and so how that all shakes out, you know, in the months ahead, as this pandemic is certainly going nowhere. I mean, as, as you probably would agree, it's you know, just going to become an endemic um, uh, eventually. But where that all shakes out for the office, where that all shakes out for the power dynamics between middle managers and their workers, and then, of course, middle managers and the C-suite, 
Um, you know, let's not forget what the C-suite is going through here as well. I, I'm not saying uh, cry a river for uh, the poor CEOs of the world, uh, <laughs> but the C-suite is being shaken up as well. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We're joined by Matthew Boyle of Bloomberg News in New York. He covers management and workplace trends. Has had He's been completely steeped in all of the various WFH. We call it WFH, WTF, remote work. I might call this episode remote control. Really, that's what it's all about. Tell me about that experiment that got so much press before the infamy of WeWork, of of these idyllic kibbutz-like co-working spaces. I mean, they were brilliant. They were the ultimate ticket to self-determination and creativity and sharing notes. And I was about to say Zima, but it's LaCroix, right? Yeah. Uh, and then and then it was it was it, it was a huge house of cards. And then when you're terrified of your neighbor and you don't want to be bonding with people and you want to be social distancing, suddenly it was a catastrophe. Is there a new role for these guys, assuming that everything does tamp down to endemic level that uh, in the absence of the five day a week office cubicle culture that people are going to lean on these more, even corporations? I think I mean, yeah, there's going to be certainly a role for them. Um, they're going to have to think a little bit harder about what it is we're in the office for. We're not just there to clock in, you know, twiddle our thumbs, pretend we're busy like a lot of us had been doing prior to the pandemic. Uh, we're going to be going in for specific reasons, you know, a team lunch, uh, a collaboration meeting, something to do, you know, something where the in-person nature of the office is actually a, a benefit rather than what we saw in the months. How many times in, in offices before the pandemic did you just see rows and rows of open plan desks with everybody had their bows uh, or, you know, beats headphones on ignoring everybody else? Uh, you know, we just we talk some of these people who uh, want people back in the office say, you know, well, we had all these idyllic, innovative conversations by the water cooler. Right. I mean, did we always? I think there's a good chunk of research. Uh, some of it came out of Harvard, I believe, that suggests that, you know, these uh, these wonderful, innovative water cooler moments where, you know, we cured cancer just by bumping into somebody, you know, at the copying machine didn't always happen. But that said, so yeah, if you're going to be telling people to come in, all right, you're coming in Monday, Wednesday, Friday, or you're the Tuesday, Thursday crowd. If I come in and get on the train and schlep and get my kid ready for school or daycare early, there better be a, you know, a, a real function, a real reason, uh, a raison d'etre for getting my butt into the office that perhaps uh, wasn't there before. And then in regards to co-working, yes, uh, I mean, yeah, I don't think there's room for another Adam Newman and a room for these, you know, crazy uh, VC fueled dreamers. But uh, there's certainly going to be more co-working. I mean, look at our uh, our favorite place in Midtown, the Princeton Club. They now want to add more co-working spaces to what was a very sort of posh, you know, stuffy uh, club full of squash courts and, you know, and, and uh, single malt scotch. I got to ask, what happens to the, you know, Hoi Poloi's common co-working place, Starbucks? You've covered the food and beverage industry and retail. They have wholesale pulled away from the dine-in concept to provision drive-through uh, yeah. and even delivery much more than in the past. What happened to that quintessential experience of showing up, wiring up, you know, paying for the refill and the Danish and everything else? I can just tell you within a three-mile radius of my house and the University of Richmond, they shut down 
both locations that had dine-in restaurants. There's this one drive-through. I think there's a great article on how this is vexing uh, shopping center owners, and that the, the the wraparounds in the morning of about twenty cars. Uh, but <laughs> well, it's gotten happened? rid yeah, of that I mean, communal experience. The breakfast wars really kicked off. Um, Starbucks wasn't right. alone, you know, in providing good coffee anymore. And we can. I'm happy if you want to get into the Starbucks versus Dunkin' uh, uh, debate. There, that's always no, but a fun Matthew, one. I'm asking. Yeah. I'm asking about the the that ticket in absence of a WeWork membership or Soho House membership or office space. If you were a peripatetic, you know voyager with a laptop or a tablet you could always pop into a starbucks and that's just less and less of an option right now they're exactly in in fact they're redesigning these places so you don't linger well i mean what they what i think people are i think they're responding to what people are doing which is grabbing their coffee at the drive-thru not having to sit next to some some slob who's been working on his novel for the past eight hours and you know hasn't cleaned up uh any of his coffee cups and just take that coffee home where you probably have a wonderful standing desk, uh, high-speed internet, your pandemic sort of uh, work-from-home setup, most of ours is pretty optimized now. And, and, and then the Starbucks can you know, save a lot on having to clean up uh, those restaurants and just work on getting stuff through the drive-through. If you haven't noticed, drive-through has become quite a science uh, in terms of how hyper-efficient it is and how many seconds they could get you through. And it's all about shaving just one or two seconds uh, off of that time. And with Starbucks, they don't have to worry, you know, it's about as many complex, uh, well, they have the complex coffee orders, but uh, they're not serving lunch for six or seven people there. It's just get your coffee, get your Danish and, and get the heck out of there. So I think it is sort of a, you know, Starbucks isn't uh, isn't dumb. They're going to be moving where their customers are moving. And if their customers would prefer uh, to work from home or from a park bench, um, rather than, you know, in a crowded Starbucks next to 18 people writing their novel, um, you know, they're going to respond to that. But maybe that's a tad reductionist. Maybe I'm paying, you know, $2.50 for the Pike's Place Grande or Tall because I kind of want the option of that ambient noise. I want the background of kind of whatever these interactions are with the barista who knows my name or knowing that I don't have to pay $2,000 a month to be a member here, but I can always pop in and yeah. feel whether I'm in Indianapolis or Miami or LA or Anchorage that, you know, this is a place that I could set up shop temporarily. Yeah, I think that, I mean, that'll still exist. Maybe there were just too many of them. Maybe there's just, you know, more of more growth on the drive through side, the drive inside, uh, you know, rather than maintaining these huge, massive, uh, you know, uh, real estate uh, with 20, 30 tables which remember, you know, we're all a block away from each other in, in major metro areas. So, you know, uh, Starbucks possibly, you know, dialing back uh, the expansion of the of the big stores and dialing up the expansion of, of the drive throughs. And, you know, uh, I think you're always going to be able to find, you know, a place. Maybe you should be going to your local, you know, independent coffee shop uh, instead. Right, Robin? Well, those guys are, are holding on for dear life as well. And yeah. I can tell you my local independent coffee shop has jury rig the window to hand us orders you can't really hire people who want to work in that intense crowded environment fielding questions from people at the bar you know where drive through is the option you know we're crashing into a whole other mega theme of of kind of what you cover here is the labor shortage and let's not even get started on chipotle but before and i only have you for so long it's nice to finally have you on matthew boyle matthew covers management and workplace trends at bloomberg news i gotta ask you about the dividends of work from home or the tax of work from home. Is it kind of generally considered if you were in a place like New York or San Francisco and you're availing yourself of a company policy to work in a, let's say, a tertiary market, you want to be in 
I don't know, uh, the Catskills or you want to be up in the Berkshires, do you have to kick money back to your company in terms of a salary adjustment? And does it work the other way where if you're at home working during the summer and you have a bigger air conditioning bill or broadband bill, that maybe you too should avail yourself of some of the savings? Yeah, I mean, the, the the first question is a really, really interesting one is what are the, you know, comp and even tax uh, implications of uh, people who decamped to some, you know, to go to upstate New York and sit out the pandemic and then realize, wait a minute, I don't, you know, this isn't just, this might not just be a temporary thing for me. We had a discussion today in the office actually about uh, it was tax reciprocality between New York and and Jersey because, you know, for years, you know, you lived in North Jersey and you commuted into Manhattan and you were getting taxed, uh, you know, New York City tax on your paycheck based on that. But then, of course, if you're no longer, you know, really in Manhattan, but you still work for a minute, you know, it's it gets really complex. And I think, you know, a lot of compensation and HR and and, and tax uh, advisors are, are going to be able to buy yachts uh, based on all the niggling questions uh, here. But I think, you know, the bottom line is companies need to be very clear in terms of what their their policies are and and not leave a, a lot of room for sort of, you know, interpretation or or fudging on this. And you got to do it in a way where, you know, you're not losing your best uh, software designer because you wouldn't let him or her, you know, decamp to the Berkshires or you decided to uh, to ding them a bit uh, here or there. So it's uh, that's one of the bigger questions that I, I frankly, you know, the answer is still being written in terms of how companies big and small are going to be treating uh, these this new sort of uh, scenarios. You know, and when you get down to brass tacks and it hits the the lease, actually, and, and these leases, this right now there are so many people still on some version of, of forbearance because they're not at full occupancy and they'd signed these leases years ago and the landlords maybe are trying to tack it on to the end of these useful, you know, 20, 15-year leases. Uh, is that going to be where kind of these companies small and medium-sized businesses can realize an infusion and say, wow, we're actually getting a savings on this and that we're using a fraction of the office space. Maybe there are creative ways of rebating it. I heard, I think, Scott Galloway, Professor Scott Galloway on his podcast talk about his company wanting to have more creative vacations or, -hmm. you know, attaboy events or employee and customer appreciation socials. Yeah, it's a great idea. And uh, (laughs) I think things, uh, companies are looking uh at all sorts of different ways to uh to do that i mean i yeah on the real estate question it's uh, it's again a good one that uh meanwhile while you see companies rethinking leases you also see companies like google you know signing new leases uh in new york but i think it gets back to what i was saying earlier in terms of you know what are you really using this for what what is the sort of office uh, going to mean to your employees making it a little bit more or really sort of uh, a destination rather than just uh you know a place of five day a week nine to five drudgery is is going to sort of dictate okay you know how are we going to then talk to our landlord about whether you know do we want a, a shorter lease what sort of terms are, are we talking about and that's something we're covering at bloomberg every day largely through uh, my colleagues uh, on the real estate team who are just you know got more stories than they know what to do with right now Close us out, Matthew Boyle. What is on your radar? What should be on our radar? It's so hard to look into 2022 with visibility. You're talking about the latest variant and is this going to stagger? I mean, people were talking increasingly, you know, Christmas, MLK is the latest that they would have the entire office back. And and so many firms have kind of punted into that indefinitely into the spring. 
Yeah, I mean, it's not spring, but into summer as well. I was talking to uh, the CEO of Indeed.com, the, the big job site. They've punted it uh, all the way into uh, to, to July. Um, and, uh, you know, they are <laughs> they know a little bit about what job seekers and, and uh, employers are, are looking for managing that millions of uh, job postings. So, you know, that's one thing that's going to be sort of an ongoing battle. But for us, it's more sort of, you know, it's it's that disconnect. It's that power struggle between whether it's between management and labor, white collar and blue collar. I think, you know, this whole issue of upskilling and reskilling, which are kind of become dirty words in certain HR circles. Um, is something that's going to uh, need to get a little bit more uh, attention rather than just this sort of, you know, blanket fear that, you know, we're all going to be replaced by robots. And and Lord knows there's plenty of stories that uh, we already uh, generate uh, through automation at, at Bloomberg and at other places. So I like to think I still can add some value here. Um, but this, <laughs> you know, ongoing issue of, you know, what does work mean? How is it done? Where is it done? Why and why is it done? Uh, and for whom? are questions that are really going to occupy me, certainly, and I think uh, more and more business writers across the landscape in, in 2022. So I'm looking forward to it. And dare I bring up in closing the metaverse? I mean, the oh. Oculus... The well, we, I mean, we can giggle. At, we can giggle about it, Robin. But I do think. I mean, one application of of this metaverse is. I mean, work is going to play a a, a big role. You know, whether you're going to be buying Gucci handbags in the metaverse, uh, I, I'm not entirely sure, or finding you know your future spouse in the metaverse. Uh, but there are definitely workforce applications. You know, just think of the meeting itself, the staff meeting. I'm thinking yes. my morning, my morning masthead meeting. I'm thinking, you know, Matthew, you're a big sports fan. Uh, you know, I believe you covered it in college and whatnot. It, you know, in that in that COVID lockdown season, I would have paid a pretty penny to have a VR connection to Staples Center and watch the Lakers home games or to have it at Dodger Stadium where they had all the cardboard cutouts or to be transported to Miami. And I'm surprised that these, you know, multi-billion dollar enterprises haven't gotten the act together. But it seems like we're finally on the kind of the hardware and, um, you know, Webster's dictionary, Merriam-Webster yeah. kind of recognizing this being a zeitgeist moment i well, i think the sports teams are t are certainly are just too uh enthralled with all the money that's flowing into sports betting right now <laughs> that seems to be their right. focus but in yeah, you, you mentioned cardboard cutouts imagine doing you know you could do a little bit better than that with your avatar right i'm, I'm just wondering should my avatar be mr met or you know or or what exactly uh, that's you know that's i think that's on the minds of some people but you're right sports work i i mean you say what you will about the metaverse, and who's 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 to say that Facebook or Meta platforms is going to dominate it? Just because Zuckerberg says they're you know they're going to be leading here doesn't mean uh, doesn't mean they will. Look at all the disruption. And that's I'll happened. tell you, re relatedly, I did not know twenty months ago what the heck Zoom was. I knew what <laughs> FaceTime was. I knew what Skype was. I knew that you could kind of do it on WhatsApp, and yet Zoom came in and yeah. owned that opportunity. I had no idea that you could flick on a switch. And send your kids to school on Zoom and work over Zoom and interview guests over Zoom. So uh, there have to be other companies that we never heard of lurking around the corner. Matthew Boyle, management guru, if you will, at Bloomberg News. You are always welcome to come back on the show. Thanks so much, Robin. It was great talking to you. Full disclosure, stay with us. This show podcast to NPR One, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts at linkfulldradio.com. Please subscribe, rate us, and recommend this show to friends and family. Additionally, we will be coming to much of Virginia, statewide, including Charlottesville, Richmond, Roanoke, in the new year, 2022, on NPR member station Radio IQ.
If you're just joining us, we're talking about the great broad implications of the shift to work from home and remote work. I guess we're calling this episode Remote Control. Uh, Joining us from Salt Lake City is Andra Ghent, Professor of Finance and the Ivory Boyer Chair in Real Estate at the University of Utah. How are you? I am fantastic, Robin. How are you doing? All right. I Look, I have a great cosmic question for you. I'm a okay. student of the savings and loan crisis, a now forgotten, you know, mostly commercial real estate scandal that subsumed much of the economy in the late 80s and early 90s. And there were just systemic failures of properties and banks left and right. Now, with all of this talk about abandoned, orphaned office space, tens of millions of square feet, are, do, you, do you stay up at night wondering if office towers are going to fail and by extension banks and, and swaths of the economy? I do not. Uh, I I don't think it's nearly the same concern for a few reasons. First of all, underwriting on loans, uh, commercial real estate loans, was pretty conservative coming out of the Great Recession, uh, or the global financial crisis, rather. So I'm not super concerned from the underwriting standard. And I also think that office property prices will fall a bit, but it's not sort of the cataclysmic decline that some media reports have said, you know, my guess is we at most some of these office buildings lose 10 to 20% of their value. And that's on the kind of high end of what I would estimate, because I don't think quite as much of the physical vacancy you're seeing right now will translate into a long-term decline in what we call economic vacancy, which is the, the actual share paying. Yeah, yeah. Well, flesh that out for me and game it out for me, if you will. So Right now, you're seeing people who thought, let's say that the thinking back in 2020 was we'll have a vaccine and people will come back to the office. But as you're reading and as our prior guest, Matthew Boyle of Bloomberg News told us, there's a lot of hesitancy to come back to the office. Maybe as a broad rethink, we're actually productive working from home. We don't need to be on commuter rail for two hours a day. We don't need to be bumper to bumper on I-95 or whatever congested freeway we're dealing with just to get to the office. That Maybe there's a better way. At what point does that hit what you're calling economic value? Is there kind of, I don't know if it's price discovery where tenants realize, well, we're paying full freight for this square footage that we signed a long lease for however many years ago, but we're using maybe half or less of that capacity. So when does that hit the value and, and, and what is the chain reaction from that? Yeah, great question. So we have improved our productivity of work from home during the pandemic because we've adopted these technologies and we've learned to use them. And there are certainly many tasks that we have learned that we will be able to do productively from home, particularly routine tasks. And I kind of think deep thinking tasks too. What we still can't do as productively from home is collaborative tasks. And so we think that the new work model will be a hybrid where people come in you know, two to four days a week, depending on uh, exactly what type of industry they're in, exactly what uh, occupation they're in, and in, in part, how fast they want to advance through their careers. So what that means is that the floor rates of office, those do have to change because the sort of tasks we're doing at the office are going to be more collaborative. And so there's going to be less physical office space per worker. And hopefully some of these hoteling applications where, you know, there's a little bit of a desk swap. You know, I think that when you talk to employers versus employees, you see different preferences on the exact amount of work from home. 
that people want to do going forward. So how does that, I mean, you can't, you can't be an a la carte tenant. I mean, it's not like you can turn what is, uh, I mean, I guess it is a variable cost. You could always shift square footage, a company ebbs and flows and swaps properties with a real estate investment trust. I mean, certainly in my career, my adult working career, even at the same job, we've moved around offices several times. But what I want to understand is kind of when that savings take place, takes place or, or what the conversation is behind the scenes with maybe the, the smaller, medium-sized business or the publication or whatever it is with the office and the office and then the office building and maybe the real estate investment trust. And then maybe the, I, I, I just don't understand how it works. And I'm hoping if you could kind of break that down for us and our listeners. Sure. Very good question. So th- there's leases in place and they tend to be anywhere from one to let's say 30 years that office tenants have. And if they have good credit, it's kind of hard for them to break their lease outright. You know, a smaller business might be able to, uh, and it, it's probably a negotiating point with the landlord. But certainly there are, it's not uncommon in office leases to have what we call extension or contraction options or renewal options at a certain rate. And certainly there's some negotiations going on at the renewal points Right now, we're not seeing super high office delinquency rates. Um, and the in terms of REITs, delinquency so estate, rates as in people not paying people not paying their rent. Yeah, I mean that's harder to observe. Um, but we certainly there's not a lot of owners that are defaulting on their loans, um, and and we think that that's because most mostly people are still paying their office rent. They're mostly office tenants are still paying. And you're right that over time, as those leases renew, and in some situations, if the tenant kind of renegotiates with the landlord, their footprints will shrink a bit. And that's what puts the price pressure on office because, you know, if you need a little bit less space, you will get a smaller space and that, you know, reduces the overall quantity of office space demanded. But I don't, you know, again, I don't see it as quite as certainly nothing on the scale of the savings and loan crisis you brought up earlier. What happens when you look at big downtowns? I mean, yes, it's it's a, you know, coastally elitist tempting to look at New York and LA and San Fran, but tell us about Salt Lake City. Are there people talking about downtown Charlotte? These uh, I'm in Richmond, Virginia where the bank towers in downtown and the Shaco slip area are still partially filled. Is there incipient talk about converting these potentially to residential units. After all, there's all this talk about this paucity of of, uh, affordable housing and housing in general in the United States. The housing stock is limited at a time when we might be seeing a surplus of commercial real estate. Yeah, very good question. And certainly the work from home trend, that is going to have a bigger effect in cities like New York and San Francisco, uh, in part because people have very long commutes. So workers, you know, workers are sort of trading off the benefits of being in the office versus this commute. And you, if you live in New Jersey and you're commuting an hour a day to Manhattan and your employer says, well, okay, you only have to come in twice a week. We'd like you to come in for, you're going to advance more quickly in your career and help us more with training junior employees or whatnot. Uh, but you're going to be more likely to choose to commute a little less in these long in these very dense areas with high commuting. In terms of Salt Lake City, I don't think there's a huge effect. Again, people are a little more willing to live further from the central business districts or the down what we call the the downtown effectively. Conversions to residential, I anticipate we'll see some of that and there's already some firms going into that space. 
it's very expensive to convert office to residential. Now, hotels, that's a lot easier to convert to residential. It's still costly, but uh, because they already have plumbing set up for residential Mm. occupancy, it's a lot less expensive to convert hotel space. Uh, Long term, and I realize it's not borne out right now by the data, this is a really good thing for affordability because it means we can use – if people are willing to live further away from the downtown, it means we don't have quite as much price pressure right downtown. Now, to step back from it, you said that you know the underwriting going into this and that financial services – I mean, too big to fail banks, various banks, ones that got government assistance and didn't get assistance out of 2008 and 2009 or chastened enough by their experience with subprime to – and and also with the Federal Reserve stress tests and auditing over the past decade that you don't think that they necessarily have overextended and overindulged themselves because I didn't know of anybody that modeled for some sort of pandemic risk and this sort of uh you know once in a hundred year what do they call it a black swan in finance happening but and yet there is no talk of bank failures right now yeah so th- that's that's exactly right. Uh for some reason so it's certainly in the securitized space so the commercial real estate loans that get packaged together with other loans or are a single large loan that gets sold off to outside investors. There was some regulation in Dodd-Frank that put very high capital costs on uh, originators of those. And we actually looked at a paper a while ago. We pre-pandemic we thought Oh, these are so conservative. They're never going to hit this loss level. Why are they setting this this requirement so high? And of course, um, it binds because we have had one of those very what we thought was an exceptionally unlikely event in the bank space. I think again, some of the very conservative underwriting post Dodd Frank, and some of it was related to regulations, and some of it was not. Uh, some of it was just sort of uh, banks choosing to be a little more conservative. We just aren't seeing a huge effect in the banking sector. I'm not again. I'm not going to say there's no effect. This is definitely an adverse effect. But most of it is hitting the equity owners right now. We haven't really hit the debt owners that much at this point. Full disclosure: I'm Robin Farzad. You are listening to Professor Andra Gent. She is Ivory Boyer Chair in Real Estate at the University of Utah. We're talking about the broader commercial real estate implications of the broad shift to work from home and hybrid. And I guess we're calling this episode "Remote Control." Talk to me about shopping centers if you will. I am struck, Professor Ghent, at how many Starbucks in my vicinity and, and up and down you know, 95 in the Mid-Atlantic where I drive have shut down and they've caused a kind of a bottlenecking and an over-dependence on the drive-throughs. And I look at these shopping centers, I guess a Starbucks has always been looked at as a kind of a peerless A-plus credit tenant. It's always going to be good for its rent. It's almost anchor-like. But honestly, there are some times in the mornings and the afternoons when the cars around the and it actually blocks the exit to the interstate or blocks the street or blocks the strip plaza. My point being is that places were not designed for a drive-through only culture. And it's been happening at, at, at units with McDonald's and other things. And maybe I was thinking that this has commercial real estate spectators worried about the way we design our commercial corridors. I think we're incredibly concerned about this. And here in Utah, it's a specific, it's a particular problem because we have the mountains surrounding Salt Lake City essentially trap in air pollution. So when we see people idling at drive throughs 
I mean, I mean, it's terrible. And the only way you can address this is with zoning restrictions. You have to have land use restrictions where you you basically make these infeasible. Yeah, I mean, it's also, I think it's a terrible trend for people to just not get out of their cars. We all need a little bit of activity throughout the day to get healthy, to stay healthy. And it destroys the walkability of neighborhoods to have all these cars clogging the streets. And But a lot of restaurants, you're right, you're absolutely right, Robin, that they don't even want it. They figured out well, why am I paying this much space? I can just have people go through the drive-through and they don't really want, you know, you go to McDonald's, you're not really there for the dining experience. Um, it's not really the ambiance. And so, you know, just last weekend, we went to both an, a, a McDonald's and a Starbucks and we didn't have the option of physically going in. And so, yeah, I do think it's a really big problem and planners and uh, city city councils and uh, they're looking at it very closely and hopefully and thinking about what we can do to prevent these drive throughs from clogging up our streets. But are we really going to, I mean, have we, re- I guess there are only so many things you can study from 1917 and 1918, but are we really signing off on the dining room or fast casual experience for good? I mean, I for one, I got a lot of great thinking and writing and editing done inside the Starbucks dining room as much as they don't want me in there right now and they're inducing <laughs> me to order on the app or pick up or go through the drive through I mean, maybe this was too soon that they've shuttered all of these dining rooms. Maybe we're going to forget about this. Maybe we're going to come back. Maybe you're going to want to sit inside a Chipotle again as opposed to paying DoorDash to bring you the burrito. You know, I hate to say this, Robin, but I don't think you were Starbucks' favorite customer because you're not generating a ton of profit for them by sitting for an hour. Uh, you know, I do think some of this will come back and, and people obviously are getting much more comfortable with the the health risks. And we just sort of, ex- I think we a lot of us accept that this is a risk going forward. And if you're fully vaccinated and you get your boosters on time, it's a pretty small risk, really. You know, I, I think some of it will come back, but certainly, yeah, they figured out, like, why would I pay? And then I have to pay somebody to clean that space, right? In addition to, to the surface area, I have to pay somebody to clean that space. So I do think some of this is here to stay. And maybe your kind of nicer neighborhood coffee shop that's not a national chain. Or I'm sure Starbucks has some that are still going to be open and want you to sit, but they are kind of reassessing. They've learned a little bit about the profitability of this. And, you know, similarly with some of these tablets, when you go into a restaurant, they're sort of realizing, particularly given the cost of labor right now, hey, I can do without a server for part of this. And yeah, there's some opportunities there. Professor Gent, we do know that Amazon has been on its kind of relentless march to retail hegemony. You know, its market cap now is at $2 trillion. Walmart's been doing very well, though in the pandemic, Target and, and others. But uh, it has also exacerbated the look of the the have-nots. I mean, the players from yesteryear. You can't really find Kmart's anymore. They're practically liquidated. Sears has been in a slow-motion liquidation. JCPenney's. Every city seems to have one of these have-malls and have-nots malls. You know, that 1985 Back to the Future shooting scene vintage <laughs> mall with a Firestone and a Sears. How are you seeing those getting repurposed kind of in the accelerated demise of, of brick-and-mortar malls? Yeah, excellent question. And I think that just keep in mind, some of this trend was going on pre-pandemic. Uh, what happened during the pandemic, so we were already moving certain sort of commoditized retail products to online, and particularly younger consumers were comfortable with that. And the pandemic accelerated right. this significantly because 
the the holdouts were the older people who of course became you know especially likely to finally learn to shop online given the health risks they faced and so we're seeing an acceleration and they're just definitely the B class malls are struggling the C class malls they're they're really struggling and they they kind of have to have experiential retail that's really what they they need to have something where you physically go in. What what is experiential retail like a wave pool? I mean, again, because we're not exactly clamoring to be in you know non social distance situations with each other right now. Like I've seen everything rock climbing, uh, yeah, rock uh, water climbing parks, are, indoor yeah. atriums. I mean, what? Yeah, yeah. So I think indoor atriums are you know maybe not as, as especially those are especially kind of lack of revenue generating spaces in your your mall but anything where you are going to spend a prolonged period so a theater would be an example a restaurant would be an example certainly a climbing gyms any other types of gyms but something where people want to physically go in it's an activity as opposed to just purchasing a product and that's really what any of these malls need now they still struggle because you don't spend as much per square foot when you go to the climbing gym that's part of, you know, you pay 20 bucks or something, 25 bucks to go to the climbing gym. And then you spend, you know, maybe an hour, maybe two hours if you're super fit. And then, you know, but you're not really generating as much revenue per square foot as you would with a traditional retail. Now, the hope again is that once you've got these people at the mall, then they go in and they decide, oh, I do need a new sweatshirt. And oh, yeah, I could probably use a some new DVDs or, or whatever it is they're buying, the hope is that they do some of that. But I think the jury's still out on how effective it is. It's something retailers are trying very hard, though. Is it true or is it just being rumored that, uh, you know, warehouse spaces, that, that kind of sector has been on fire? Because as people realize how precarious our supply chain is right now, you can't leave anything to kind of just in time. You can't you can't just wing it anymore. You have to have a surplus. You have to have a strategy to back your physical locations. And hence, all of these almost borderline brownfield locations are suddenly being snapped up. Yeah, no, I, that was true pre-pandemic too. So industrial as an asset class was doing phenomenally well pre-pandemic. And I, I think what a lot of investors, there's so much demand for these right now is a lot of investors are finally at the point where they're looking at the prices they'd have to buy it at and sort of like, huh. This looks kind of really expensive. And so there's a, uh, you know, it has gotten very expensive. It's a bit of an acceleration from pre pandemic trends. And a lot of it is also holding all the goods that we're now buying online. Um, the big challenge is, of course, the last mile distribution, which I think is slowly getting solved. But yeah, there's definitely that, that sector's been on fire for, a, uh, for some number of years, but it accelerated during the pandemic. Uh, in the five minutes or so we have left with you, Professor Gent, what should we be asking? What should be on our radar? Things that you're working on, uh, you know, when you're when you're seeing coverage in the press about uh, the work from home boom and the surplus of office space, what isn't being asked enough? Yeah, a good question. So, you know, I think the conversation about productivity at the office is a really important one, and particularly how you kind of set up the hybrid week and how much employees value being able to work from home one day versus two days versus three days from home and sort of what that labor supply curve looks like. Because certainly we know that uh, employees like this. They don't, most of them don't want to work 100% online, but they do like working a little bit online. And so, uh, sorry, from home, not online. Of course, they're going to be online at the office as well. But I think that's the question. And then I think firms are still also figuring out the productivity of when they have uh, employees that are working a lot from home. 
Most of the, we don't have hard evidence on this, but it seems like at the firm level, there's a lot of what we call positive externalities of kind of having an older worker come into the office and it might, or a more senior worker, if you will. And it, the thing is, it might not directly boost the senior worker's productivity, but it helps the junior people to mentor. And so that I think is something we need to to kind of look at very closely. And hopefully firms will figure this out by hopefully having serious conversations with other employees about their with their employees. And some employees may choose, even if they're more productive at the office four days a week, and they may choose two. And I think that employers need to be upfront that if there is a productivity loss from that, that the employee needs to take that productivity loss in the form of lower wages. And so I think that conversation wow. is starting to go on. Yeah. When you talk to employers, they're happy with a, a lot of them are happy for a hybrid work week, but they want a few more, a little bit more time at the office than employees do. And I think a lot of the reason you're seeing disconnect between employer surveys and employee surveys is that employees aren't kind of internalizing their lower productivity. And again, this varies tremendously by occupation, by industry, and even individuals within the same industry and occupation. Some people are just able to work more effectively from home. And a lot of people would like to work out at the office in the suburbs, particularly people with young kids that might not, might have some distractions at home. And so I think suburban office space has the potential to do quite well in the next few years as a sort of substitute for workers to go in somewhere without going all the way downtown. Now, does this help the the co-working space, which clearly took a huge black eye with the demise of WeWork, which WeWork is still out there. It, it IPO'd. It's a fraction of what it used to be, a lot of smoke and mirrors. But the concept itself might be more attractive, especially as you say that these suburbs and satellite cities look more appealing now. And if you're going to toggle between the metropolis and uh, the suburbs, that you have a second office with other creatives. Yeah, it can potentially. Uh, I think that could work really well. I mean, there's some challenges with business. A lot of WeWork's business model that was was quite risky was that they had they themselves had these long term leases, um, and then they had these very short term. Uh, so their liabilities were very long term, and then they had these uh, short term assets, which was, was the leases they were getting revenue from. And so it was a bit of a, a disconnect, uh, which so it was quite a risky strategy financially. But yeah, I do think suburban office, I don't know whether it will look like we work. Uh, I, I don't know exactly what that's going to look like. Maybe not as much collaborative space, because again, I think the big demand there is, you know, somewhere to work on your own tasks. And then you go to the office when you want to do collaborative tasks. So I, I think that that is a, a potential. Absolutely. Professor Andra Ghent teaches finance and real estate at the University of Utah, where she holds the Ivory Boyer Chair in Real Estate. I've really enjoyed having you on, and I hope you will come back on. Yes, this has been great. Thank you so much, Robin. Full disclosure, our special thanks this week to Claire Morgan at Notterly, this show podcast to NPR One, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts at link fullderadio.com. Please Subscribe, rate us, and recommend the show to friends and family. Additionally, we will be coming to NPR member station Virginia Public Radio across Richmond, Charlottesville, Roanoke, much of the great Commonwealth in the new year. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening. Back with you next week. Music